Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Sierra Van Rick de Groot and Janelle Thompson. Sierra and Janelle, welcome to the show. Howdy. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So to get started, for those who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Maybe we'll start with Sierra. Sure. I'm Sierra Van Richtiger. I am born and raised in New Jersey and happy to be living here now. We're located in very northern Bergen County. And I am the deputy director for Museum Hue. And a little bit about that is just that a little bit of everything, honestly, for the organization. I get to do HR and operations, but then also getting to oversee and work on all of the projects that the organization does. So it's a pretty cool job when you boil it down. <laughs> and Janelle, how about you? Hey, everyone. Janelle Thompson here, currently in Harlem, New York. Native New Yorker, was born in Jamaica, immigrated to New York City, my family, when I was young. I am the research and partnerships manager at Museum Q. I'm the newest to the team. I have been working on some really cool projects as it relates to our research that we've been doing in the last few years, really looking at ways to amplify and support Black and Brown founded and led arts and cultural organizations. So we'll be launching a docuseries project very soon, which I worked really closely with our video team on that I'm really excited and thrilled with how that came out. And then we have a new project called the Heat Museum, again, building on our past research that we, that was focused on New York City and New York State. And now we're looking to take it national. And so I've been working on that. Awesome. Terrific. And we're going to talk more about what Museum Hue is, which I think is a very important question. But first, my favorite side question for each of you, how did you get into the business? What's your superhero origin story? I'll go back to you, Sierra. I actually think when I talk to other people in the field, I actually think that my entry point is pretty boring and linear. I started off in undergrad for graphic design and then really fell in love with my art history classes getting to learn about objects and, and experiencing them, thinking about how they're composed, the materials used, the thought that goes into it. And getting to talk about that with people was so fulfilling to me in a way that like graphic design wasn't. And so I found myself leaning into museums, especially museum education. I then went to graduate school at um, Bank Street College of Education in New York City, uh, which was and still is one of the leading museum ed programs in the country. and. We, from there, just have been interning and working at design and art history museums throughout the the country and actually the continent because I also was in Canada briefly. So it's been fun to do that kind of work and work with people directly on some of the coolest objects and collections in the world, working in places like New York Historical, just like one of the oldest museums, the Met, which also is the Met is the Met, you know, and spaces like that. Just getting to have a, a job that people dream of having, like actually being able to do that, is has been the coolest journey so far. But now that's administration, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> not that's not boring and linear at all. It's like a yeah. U-turn from graphic design and then you take over North America. I think that's I awesome. Mean, that's yeah. the plan. <laughs> all right, so origin story. How about you, Janelle? Yeah, I actually never thought I would work in museums. Actually, in undergrad, I was a bio major. I thought I was going to go to med school. And then I was like, no, I hate that. And then pivoted to political science and sociology, which is why I got my degree in. And I was like, okay, if not med school, I'll go to law school. But then I was like, no, hate that too. And in, so to go back a little bit, when I was in high school, a friend of mine, her mom worked at the Brooklyn Children's Museum. And she was like, hey, like it's your senior year, like y'all can make some extra money, like do this museum after school program. And so we were like, okay, cool. So we did it. And that was my first time being in like a museum space and understanding what went on. But even at that point, I still was like, not thinking that that could be a career for me as I was in undergrad, I was like, hmm, 
I'm not sure what I want to do. But then I thought back to that experience that I had at the museum and I was like, boom, maybe I'll look into like careers there. So I did an internship with this organization called Studio in a School, which is founded by Agnes Gunn. And that program took us to museums all across New York City, really exposed me to different careers, learned about curatorial development, exhibitions, all of these different things like that. So that was really where I was like, you know, I think I'm going to move forward in, in this in this career, similar to what Sierra shared. I, I found it really fulfilling and interesting and intellectually stimulating and what gave me what I was looking for, I think, in other career paths that I had considered. So from there, similarly, I, I think one of the ways you really get into the field is from interning, from volunteering. And so did that for a few years and then got a fellowship. And that was my my real foot in the door into the field. Those are two great origin stories. All right. So we're going to talk a lot about careers in museums and the exhibitions field. Let's save a little for when we do that. And I think we can get right into our discussion for today. Here we go. Today's episode is Uplifting the Voices of People of Color in the Arts, Culture, and Exhibitions Field with Sierra Van Rick de Groot and Janelle Thompson. So, as always, I know the list, but not much more, and my guests have the rest. Today, we have six points to go over. If listeners want to keep track while they're jogging or reparking the car or taking copious notes, that's what I do. So, number one is another kind of origin story. What Museum Hue does and how it all started. Number one, what Museum Hue does and how it all started. I love this story. I think it's very powerful. Could you tell our listeners the answer to that question, what Museum Hue does? Absolutely. So Museum Hue started actually February. We were celebrating our ninth birthday like this month. And we started February 2015. And it was started as a grassroots organization that was answering a long requested call from the field to have a community space for museum workers of color, regardless of the institution that you worked at or where you're from or your background, just a space for you to just connect in a field that is predominantly white and predominantly like European leading. You There was just like need for folks who looked like us to have a space to connect over what was going on at work, what was going on politically, socially, but having someone who got it, like someone who connected with like all the, all the things that could happen to you in a space. And the two founders, Stephanie Cunningham and Monica Montgomery, really built this organization from scratch in, in Brooklyn. The very first opening event was February 20th, 2015 at Mokata, the Museum of, Con- of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts. And so that space on 80 Hanson, which they've just moved to, and they're building a new space in Brooklyn, which should be opening any day now. But in their original space, that was where the party was. And they had Lori Combo there, who was the commissioner of the Department of Arts and Culture in New York City. They've had names in the field that folks recognize for doing important work for folks of color or for folks trying to understand what it's like and, and understand and interpret in more just dis- diverse spaces, folks like Kiana Hendricks, and there were several other people who I'm like escaping my mind, but I'm also running through that list because I was there. And it's kind of like a really fun full circle moment to see this organization grow from an idea that two folks had and seeing all these people want to get together and create a space and fun for me because I talk about that pivot moment between graphic design and museums and like that event was one of them that one of those like really linchpin moments where I was like, oh, I can go into this field and be successful. Like the, here, here I am in a room with people who look like me, who've, who have similar stories to mine and are now like chief curators, directors, EDs, like executive directors, like just really important people and, and supporting them like, oh, this is this is a this is what I, I I need to be. This is what I need to be around. And I'm I I would say that I'm also like the poster child for like what exactly Museum Q was supposed to be, for, which was representation, but also building that network and that community for folks 
as they continue to come into the field or think about work in this field or engaging this field, that that there is space for folks like us. It's been a fun journey to go from there. And then it's become a 501c3 now, no longer just a grassroots volunteer run. um, Full 501c3, there's four staff. And we are uh, still based in Brooklyn, but our team is largely remote uh, throughout the area. And we've expanded our focus to be not just community building around like museum tours and um, panel discussions or uh, just like community networking events. But we also have now picked up a research lens where we are also collecting and analyzing information from uh, arts and culture leaders of color around what it means to run and found a space for people of color to preserve our our cultures and histories. And I say people of color as a, um, as a space of brevity, but I don't want to take away from the fact that like every culture that is like lumped in there, it is for Black folks, Indigenous folks, Latino, Latinx folks, the Pacific Islanders, Asian, Middle Eastern, everyone who would fall under that category. We recognize all those cultures and all invited to be part of this space. And we're definitely doing a lot of work to make sure that organizations representing those cultures are now being studied and discussed as and the issues that they face in running their organizations are being discussed on a broader scale versus being things that we talk about at conferences or, or like roundtable conversations. But this kind of loops in the community and not going outside. We're finally doing the doing the numbers, doing the work so that people can see that like, no, no, here is here's the actual data. Let's do something about it. So that's really what Museum Hue has kind of done and it continues to do. And we're we're probably going to talk more about some of those projects that have come up. But that's that's kind of the the start of it. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. There's some really, I think, profound numbers around this story. Some, I guess, just statistics that when I first heard them, uh, I was I was amazed to to put numbers next to some of the things I thought we always knew. But Janelle, you were earlier when you introduced yourself, you were talking about some of the projects that you are doing at Museum Hue today. Could you expand on that a little bit? Go into the research, the partnerships, the other things that I know that you are that you're doing at the organization because that's a whole whole set of things that's very different from being grassroots. Absolutely. So at the onset of the pandemic, I think Sierra tells the story very beautifully, but I think the the cultural sector, the museum feel was at a moment where it's like, oh my God, we've we haven't been doing the best that we can to support professionals of color, to support organizations of color. All of these different museums and organizations were asking, like, what can we do? How can we support Black lives, amplify Black lives, advance Black lives, and also other folks of color? And so I think one key piece that was missing was that there's no research, there's no data. People were like, we don't know who's out there. We don't know who to support. We didn't know how to get in contact with them. And so Museum Hue, along with the Laundromat Project, Hester Street, received funding from the big foundations Ford and Mellon to launch this research project, which is called Hue Arts NYC. And that project really mapped and listed over 400 organizations, arts and cultural organizations founded and led by Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, Pacific Islander, and other people of color. So folks couldn't no longer say like, hey, we don't know who's out here. It's like, here, here it is. Here's the list. Here are folks that you can partner with. Here are folks that you can think about different ways to amplify and support their work. And so as that project grew, folks were like, okay, well, New York isn't just New York City. There's also New York State, right? There's a beautiful, rich cultural community across New York State. And so that project expanded to also look at arts and cultural organizations founded and led by people of color and across New York State. And again, it followed the same uh, model of having a map, a directory, and a report that really listed recommendations around what the field can do to better support and advance these organizations and these professionals as well. And so those are two really meaty reports that I think 
even though it's been a few years since they, well, New York City came out and a year or so since New York State has come out, I think the recommendations really still stand. Unfortunately, although it's been a few years, we're still seeing the same issues plague the field. And I think also now we're seeing that giving isn't happening in the same way. Organizations are really in in a mode of struggling. And I think that arts and cultural organizations founded and led by folks of color continue to bear the brunt when philanthropists decide to change their priorities, fund different things. It's, it's, It's largely organizations of color that continue to struggle and aren't able to sustain themselves in in ways that larger predominantly white organizations can i just want to underline something you just said which was also when we first were talking before blew my mind you just said there uh, your initial research project hugh arts nyc listed over 400 arts and culture organizations led by people who are black indigenous latinx pacific islander middle eastern asian I, I, when I heard that, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't even realize there were 400 arts and culture organizations in NYC. That's a really big number. I just, I just want to make sure our listeners understand it. Now, New York City's a, that's a big city. There's a lot of people who live here, but you'd, I was surprised. I think everyone listening here, wherever you may live, you would be surprised. Another thing, well, we'll get to, get to point two because I think, Janelle, you're talking about, the organizations themselves, existential crises that may be faced by these organizations and disproportionately bearing the brunt of uh, changes in the zeitgeist about fundraising and and funding and all of that that all cultural organizations feel. But another thing that I think goes back to the roots of the organization is the staff of the museum, who is actually working there. So point number two today is the challenge of raising the voices of people of color in the museum and exhibitions field. And Sierra, you described yourself earlier as a poster child for it's very meta, like it's meta meta. <laughs> but can you say a little bit about what that challenge is exactly? What are you what are you confronting? What are we all confronting in terms of raising the the voices of people of color in the field itself? I think that it's it's a number of things. There's there is the element of of being a person of color in any space that is not predominantly of folks of color where there's issues around race, ethnicity, background, identities in general in those spaces and, and how you can bring yourself into those spaces, how authentically you can bring yourself into those spaces. One thing that's really big is that statistically what we've been seeing is that you will see folks of color most represented in museums and art spaces in front of house or more public serving roles. So you'll see security, operations, facilities are often folks of color, visitor experience, like if you have a shop or a cafe or any of those spaces on public public facing spaces that are on, on site are usually the ones that have folks of color. Seasonal jobs like summer camps or teaching artists, those are often where you'll find folks of color in that kind of separation in like almost like a segregation of of people in the music space has been has been around for years like it's just like and then it doesn't even matter how old the museum is or or who and what it started you do start to notice that like trickle up effect that like once you start going towards the back and you start looking at admin and seeing like people who are salaried and have like in our full time and have benefits etc those people are often um, folks uh, folks who are white and have like traditional backgrounds and schooling and education and are usually a little bit more comfortable. And so we are trying to uplift voices for folks of color in the field. We want to also acknowledge the fact that there, there are not people of color in all areas of the museum field, and we want to embrace that. We want to make sure that they're uh, not embrace that, but we want to acknowledge that and embrace folks joining these spaces. And I think exhibitions is one that we're really seeing a lot of discussion and change around because this particular moment in museums has been around the discussion of not just the objects that we have in our spaces, but how do we interpret and display those objects? 
And that is where the exhibition design is so crucial. Like I've had people come to museum spaces and are like, I would absolutely never want to go see an exhibition about mustard in my entire life. But I went and saw this incredible show, well designed, I know all this history now, like did you know? And and I'm like, that's the power of good exhibition design. Like good exhibition design can draw you in, teach you about things that you had no interest in learning about and, and really keep you engaged and interested in wanting to go further. When we get into spaces like discussing different cultures or, or or countries and spaces, like that's where we want to see not just that creative exhibition design, but really good interpretation as well. And we're we're redoing exhibition spaces that were done in the origin of museums. I know that just recently the news came out that a lot of museums had to pull down their native and indigenous exhibitions because we finally have passed legislation that is like requiring permission from living members of some living indigenous members of tribes that are either in the area or representatives and you need that you need their insights to have those things on display and people haven't done that for years we are we're seeing both sides of it so like folks brought their stuff down from the air we're also seeing a lot of conflict around what's happening at the Penn Museum with the controversy around those the moon bombing and the skeletons of the victims that they had and Penn just absolutely not engaging with the community. And that was a bit of a side tangent, but, but still bringing us back into that idea of like thinking about how we acknowledge and discuss how we represent folks of color, not just working in the museum, but within the museum's and that how and with good exhibition design like you don't have to continue this narrative of like forbidden and and just like this white cube of superiority that folks have around museums exhibition design is really that connecting object like i i love when you think about how a museum works that how everyone plays a role in the experience of how you engage with that space from visitor services to education if you take a tour like how you like learn about a space to again the exhibition design is how you engage and you look at the objects and you like want to move on all the way through to like the entire experience how do you ensure that exhibition design is not just reflective of what certain type of people think should be on display how can we bring in different backgrounds and mindsets and thoughts into how we can innovate and think through exhibition design so we don't have to pull down exhibitions in the future or we don't have to Say, oh, we gotta reinterpret this whole area because things are now different. We can just constantly be having conversations within communities, communities of color, diverse communities of designers, to to build spaces that are inclusive and acknowledging all the things that could come and and be in a space and be pulled out of a collection that is on view. So a lot to be said about uplifting voices, but a large part of it around it starts within the museum, like how we even how we even interpret exhibitions. Yeah. And I would also say, I think also the professionalization that I think happens mm-hmm. in a lot of like humanities and arts and cultural fields. Like I think largely it's this view that if you didn't get your PhD or you didn't get your master's in indigenous studies or Chicano studies or whatever, you're even if you're from that community, you don't have the knowledge or the background to speak on to speak on it in this type of setting but it's actually like this is our culture like we should be the ones to be imparting this knowledge and i think there just needs to be more openness and willing to work with communities and 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 bring in their knowledge their their innate knowledge they they are they're in the in the community you know what i mean and they should be able to bring their knowledge and and be open and able to share in, in the museum space regardless of that and so i think i think that is what is part of the challenge and then i think also just going back to data like i think the data just doesn't exist on what the challenges are no one has asked us no one has asked museum workers of color and like what is the challenge in being in this field i think anecdotally we know but no one has done it but i think recently it seems like more and more that folks are really interested in 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 gathering this data the museums of moving forward report i think is one that came out recently specifically looking at 
workplace equity and organizational color, specifically in art museums, right? But I think that I would love to see more more growth and more resources put into actually gathering data from professionals of color in in the field to really understand and to really put on paper what what we're struggling with. Well, so many different things to to respond to there that your observation about front of house versus back of house. Normally we think about front of house, back of house as being like a place where you change your construction budget because it doesn't have to be quite as fancy or where you have to have a badge to get into the BOH area and not so much for the FOH. That's a really interesting way to think of it. There's other things that happen right at that door that you have to badge into. Also, I just want to thank you for saying that's the power of exhibition design. I love that. I think you're you're catering to my special interests, but and with the <laughs> with the, the anecdote about mustard, comma the exhibition. I love that. Did you mention that just because you're talking to me, or did you mention that because in the area of exhibitions, that's a place where you are starting to see more change? or it's more evident. I I could rephrase that a different way. Where in the museum are you starting to see more change? It's 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 not in the back of house. Is it in the exhibitions? Is it is it anywhere you can point to? Green shoots? I I would say that there's I would acknowledge that there is change happening on the back of house side of things, but I would also say that exhibition and interpretation of whatever is on display has been really pressing and been the I think the largest push of change that is publicly visible. I think the stuff that's going on back house is going to take time to start being publicly visible, but we know that folks are unionizing and folks are talking about pay equity and paying your interns and those things aren't as visible when you walk into a space, but you can start seeing like actual change when you walk into an exhibition space and you read the wall text and you see how they are making the space either accessible to people based off of how the 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 text is written. You can even think about accessibility in terms of like the reading level. I the first time someone was like, "Oh, we try to read our exhibition wall text on the reading level and make sure people know what the reading level is," and then we try to keep it at a certain a certain level. And you're like, "Oh, people are actually thinking about that. It's not just oh, there is a a full essay on the wall, and you may or may not read it, and, but it's like really." really academic sounding no people are sure look no no we'll we'll break it down and share this idea in a way that folks will be able to understand it's when you see i love walking into a museum space and seeing multilingual wall text now like that change has been really lovely i love seeing like uh-huh. so one side and another and like not just spanish like i love when it's yeah. like big chunky wall text and it's like uh-huh. english Spanish. There's like Chinese on there. It's like, and you're like, yes, like I love that. Yeah, I was. I've been in. I don't know how many large museums. Less true with smaller ones, but large museums are often, especially ones that are in cities, are are definitely one after the other setting up policies to be bilingual at a minimum, and in other cases to be more than bilingual. I'm really appreciating you're talking about again this. This idea of front of house, back of house, that the exhibition, it's a little bit, I think the underlying, what I don't know if you're implying it, but I'm inferring it, the underlying idea here is that museums are making perhaps easy changes or the ones that people can see, which you can do by changing a label or by hiring a different design firm or by gussying up what you have for people to see. But the harder things that might be in the boardroom not only back of house, but really back of house, up at the top floor in that big room at the table you only use four times a year in the boardroom, and that's where that change has to be made. On the subject, point number three, the real numbers, percentages of museum staff who are people of color. Sierra, you were talking before about frontline staff, security, shop, uh, cafe, visitor services. What, what are the real numbers? What are the real percentages? Can you tell our listeners? You, you've, you, Y'all have told me this some in the past, I've attended workshops, presentations you've done, and that that really a little bit blew my mind too. What what's the latest? What are the latest percentages that you're seeing in your data? That's a great question, and I say that because I think we're like in a moment where that number is changing. 
like I think in the past we've seen in like the high teens, low twenties of like cumulative folks of color working in museum spaces. But one of the things that's been fascinating to me has been this onslaught of articles of all these folks of color who were hired in like 2020, early pandemic to be in museums when these conversations were like fresh and trendy around like what, like who was working, who was working in back of house, who was working, do you have a DEI officer, do you have like, um, um, did you hire this flashy new, this is your first black curator. When all those hires were being made at large institutions, uh, folks were like, oh, this is progressive. This is amazing. But now in 2024, we're seeing all of those people one by one either being fired or they're leaving and posting letters about their experiences, exposing toxicity, lack of support, lack of resources to get the work that they. And so I think that looking at the statistics would be disingenuous at this point because it wouldn't be telling the true story like we haven't collected the data that reflects the moment that we're seeing right now because we're talking about those folks but we're not talking about the people who are being affected by unionization efforts that are happening at museums we're not getting those whole stories and we do know that folks have striked we also know that folks have that there have been cases of retaliation that we've been hearing about how are the how is that affecting folks of color we also are in a really really awful hiring moment for a lot of folks in a lot of industries and museums are not exempt from that museums arts and culture organizations are not exempt from that and so there's always folks looking for for work and trying to find stable work and we joke about it because the new york city museum scene i feel like is simultaneously large and very small at the same time but everyone is going for the same job so Anytime you speak to a hiring manager who has a position, they're like, I got 100 plus applications, 200, 300 plus applications for this one role. And and yeah, these are, I would love, I am actually personally waiting for a data study to come out soon with accurate numbers reflecting the things that we are talking about right now. Because those numbers, I think, will give a more accurate portrayal versus I think there's been an almost like an inflated number since like maybe 2017 where people were starting to do this. I think we're now starting to see like the the like magic wear off and we're actually starting to see okay how much support and encouragement it actually is there for folks of color to succeed in your space now that the like honeymoon period is over from when it was when it was fun (laughs) and also i think so much of the data that has come out in the past i'm thinking back to the melon report that came out in 2015 that saw you know 27 percent of museum staff or something like that identified of people of color but they really only looked at art museums and i feel like art museums tend to be a little bit more represent like diversely representative where history museums science museums even in doing this research this museums research speaking to folks in the science field that we we got told that there are no science museums founded and led by Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, or other people of color. It's like, how's that possible? So I think there, again, going back to the data, there needs to be richer data for us to understand what does it really look like across the cultural field, not just in art museums, but in these history museums. In these museums where folks stay in their jobs for 40, 50 years, where people have these PhDs, and there, there are just so many barriers and I feel like they keep moving like one year it's like okay you just need a master's to get in and then it's a PhD and then you need 10 years of experience you know what I mean so I think I think we are as Sierra was saying we we need to see an updated report on what's what's really going on in the field there's been momentous change over the last few years yeah, and the most recent version of that Mellon report that Janelle was talking about um, came out in 2022, and it gave us a 32% of folks um, interviewed in that survey identified as folks of color, um, which is higher than previous years. Like, as I said, it's historically been in the teens or like the low 20s. 36% is significant, but that was 2022. Things were, things were I'm going to say, good, and that's like good with an asterisk, as good as it could be in museums. <laughs> now i would love to see what that number looks like and accurately 
portraying that conversation. You think it could be because a 2022 report, the research might have been done in 2021. Now we're two or three years ahead. Now we're recording this in February of 2024 for anyone who's listening in the future. So you're surmising that it could be that those numbers could theoretically be radically different now because there's been a couple of years of what we're reading in the paper is a DEI backlash or whatever you want to call it. Or as you're as you're describing it, many hires are made. Nobody thinks how to support and make those hires sustainable. Um, individuals, solo individuals are hired in to be uh, the, the one hire in a small place, no support for that person in there backing out and telling people about their experience as they go. So let me just do a quick uh, halftime show. If you are just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see those reviews. And thank you so much for everyone who has made this show a five-star podcast on both those platforms. Amazing. You can also just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and its sister newsletter. And now back to the show. We are talking today with Sierra Van Rick de Groot and Janelle Thompson about uplifting the voices of people of color in the arts, culture, and exhibitions field Six points for today. We've done three. That must mean that next up is point number four, and that is how we can bring students into sustainable careers in the arts. And in brackets, what sustainable means here. When we last talked, we met, we did this version of the show live at a conference last year. That's how we first met. And when we did that, you taught me a lot. You opened my eyes about what sustainable means. I am speaking here as a white, straight, cisgendered male and someone who's had a career serving the arts for some time. So it was eye-opening when you started talking about what sustainable meant. That was very important for me to hear. I'm sure that's true for, will be true for a lot of our listeners. So point number four, how we can bring students into sustainable careers in the arts and what sustainable means here. What does that mean and how can we do that? What I'm thinking about right now is last week, Museum Hue held a event at the Met, and it was really closing out a series that our colleague Addison Tobias, who's the programs manager at Museum Hue, envisioned really thinking about, again, going back to, to our core of supporting museum professionals of color. And so we had this like homecoming convening last week at the Met. And we had a really incredible turnout and we had so many young professionals in the field coming. They're really interested in working on their resume, getting tips for their cover letter, working on the best ways of like bring doing a great interview, all of these different things. And we had a really amazing keynote as well from Suheili Katarina, who used to work at the Met as the I'm forgetting what what they did, but they did a lot of community engagement and and programs and things like that. And I I really left that event feeling hopeful for the field, just seeing all of these really brilliant young professionals. But at the same time, when I think back to reality and think about also my personal experience in the field, it's really a tough field to be in. I think a lot of times it doesn't feel sustainable. And I think largely that's because we're in one of the most expensive cities. <laughs> it uh, takes a lot to live <laughs> here. And working in the arts and cultural field isn't the most lucrative. And I think also to, to what Sierra said earlier, there's hundreds of applicants going for one one position. You know what I mean? And so a lot of what I was hearing, even from those young professionals, they feel stuck. They want to grow. They want to advance in the field, but they just don't have the guidance. They don't have mentors. They they just don't know. And so coming, they they came to that event really looking for 
for that guidance and support on how to really advance in the field. And I think particularly for for professionals of color, we many of us don't come from well-off backgrounds. I think like why so many of us, a lot of us didn't even know about this field and the opportunities that were available, right? I think largely this field was for people who were from well-off backgrounds and who could study art history. Like I feel like... (laughs) I, I was like, I feel like if I told my mom I was studying art history, she would be like, what job are you, what job are you getting with that? Coming from an immigrant background, you're pushed into very specific careers because I, I'm a first gen college graduate. So me graduating college and being successful means a lot to my family. And so I think there are all of these factors that play into what it means to have a sustainable career in this field. It sometimes feels like the the two the two will not meet sustainable and being in the arts and cultural field it it feels sometimes like that's that's not really possible and i think after the pandemic also like i know a lot of people are considering leaving the field you know just dealing with burnout not getting adequate pay not feeling like you can really advance and grow in the field so I don't know. I don't know how we can bring students into sustainable careers in the arts. I think there's a lot at the core that that would need to change to really for this field to really become more sustainable. What did I you agree. hear at that event? I'm I'm imagining because in the course of conversation, Sierra, you mentioned nine years ago that you were at that original event at Mokeda, and now Janelle, you're saying you were at that event just now at the Met. Uh, they sound like in in some ways similar similar convenings with maybe different spirit. What were you hearing from the people at that event at the Met that just happened? Yeah, I felt like the energy was shared. I think across like everyone in the room that there was so much hope when you saw those folks, like those young people. There's something really beautiful about getting to do this work with folks like young folks of color who are interested in joining the field. Um, I don't think of myself as like a particularly sentimental person sometimes, but like there was a moment where there was this long line. Janelle was being like absolutely amazing and and doing check-in like on this little tiny iPad, checking in all these people. But there was just a growing line of 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 students and young people who were trying to check into this event, which for context, this is our university homecoming event. It was a as Janelle said, a culminating event. Um, around just like providing resources to early career professionals. Uh, so we brought in members of our board, partners like Studio Institute, um, The Met. Uh, we also partnered with uh, some of our former speakers from that series. Um, so we had uh, someone from the Guggenheim, someone from New York Historical, Dreaviart Projects in the Bronx. So it was a really, it was it was a really fun event because we really did bring in so many of our partners and, and, and friends and colleagues, our community to support this group of students, but then getting to see the students and like, they gave me so much hope for the future because there there are days I feel now old enough to, to fully understand how it feels to like come home and you're like, this week, this day, like it was work. We worked. <laughs> I did the work. And, and you're like, this is my job. I do this now for the next 30 something plus years. This is it. Like we work and you get bogged down, jaded by the, by the, the work of it all and and then you come into spaces like that and these folks are excited they're they're energized they're holding their resume their laptop in hand they're like we want to hear from you we want to hear about your story we want to know like what you do is so cool like tell us everything and you and you are forced to have a minute to sit there and be like oh my gosh what i do is cool actually and like you're cool one for being here but also i'm reading your resume and you're infinitely cooler and more qualified and working so much harder than I ever could have fathomed of doing. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do next for what I'm doing. I want to see what you're going to be. I hope you're in my seat in five to 10 years. And that feeling is why we want to continue doing programs like that to support that idea of sustainability in the field, because that's, that's at the core of what Museum Q was like founded for was to create a space for folks of color so that, even if you were placed in a PWI, even if you were placed in another a small historic house somewhere, or you're working in one of these organizations founded or led by another person of color, like 
regardless of where you are, we have a, our, have each other to share resources. We have each other to build on, to build that network, to continue pushing forward. And, and if we don't continue being in spaces like these and being able to have conversations in spaces like that, we can't continue to do that work to push for that change. Because I promise you that those changes we were talking about for those exhibition designs were 90% of the time they came those ideas all originated with some person of color making a comment about something like it is it is always someone being like but why isn't it like that and even if it does end up being the the white person whose voice is listened to in the office or it is someone who heard it at a conference and brought it back to their workspace and were like i heard this and i think we should do it or it's a paper that they read or whatever the that change starts with us being able to be in spaces like these to be able to advocate and spread that word and and sometimes it is as simple as someone just saying it and you're like oh no you're right that's that's not here that's not that's not being done or whatever and for some people that's a fight that's the beginning of like an eight ten months fight with your board your leadership to to justify why this needs to happen you got to find statistics we pulled visitor attendance data who's coming from where to kind of support all these changes that need to come in and uh, how much does it cost how much risk is involved and when you do that it, it, it's taxing and again we get all caught up in the minutia of trying to do that work trying to push forward and it's exhausting but i think being able to give back to the future of the community like that is one way that it has been sustainable for keeping me in the field at least and then i would say the other way of of creating sustainability in the sector has been a lot of the conversations around pay equity it's been so amazing to hear conversations about pay equity and, and salary transparency people are talking about their salaries and i know that when we originally recorded this i shouted out our colleagues um did art and museum transparency spreadsheet which was out in like 2015 or so i would also acknowledge that kimberly drew a little bit of color <clears throat> Also, was the person who initially said that at an at an AAM conference. So, was the first person for so many people to put their salaries up on a PowerPoint and be like, "This is what I was making at every journey at every institution I've ever worked at." And it was, I remember seeing the tweets and the messages that day where people were like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't even know someone could make that little money," or like, "Oh my goodness, I didn't know that that was how much they were getting paid for that." And finally people were talking about how much they were making in spaces and that spreadsheet was one of the best things that ever happened to this field because it forced so many conversations about one talking about salary in the workplace there are some places that have that in their handbook but it is that it's not appropriate to do that that is legal in some states and so like there were also conversations about legality there were conversations around people finding out that people in their own museum who had a similar job as them were making the same or less or more than them. Like there was conversations around like, we gotta change this for ourselves. People who are looking for new jobs are able to reference like salaries from other people. Those conversations pushed so much for like, like forward for this industry that I'm so grateful because I think that was such a pivotal moment for us in talking about just like one, how underpaid but brilliant this field is. I. I don't know a single museum worker who doesn't have like 16 hidden skills like that they also do like I've met people who are like professional butchers, sommeliers, people who are their artists on the side, they have like a full successful artwork like book press, uh, um, people who are silk screeners and printers like people who have full separate lives but also work in industries like these just truly some of the coolest people I've ever met. They've also come in with, as mentioned before, like a million degrees, credentials, certifications, et cetera, just to be in this space. And we have to acknowledge at brass tacks, like that kind of level of, of, of asking for not just, not just to be paid well, but acknowledging that like we had to change so much to, to about the application, that recruitment process that led that conversation about the salary. People were like, why are we sharing the salary in the first place? Why are we putting it on job descriptions? And we're like, we actually need to rewrite the whole job description. Now that we're talking about salaries, let's talk about the whole thing. And so we were, you've also seen changes in how people write job descriptions where before we used to see, you must be able to lift 50 pounds. You must be able to do this. And you never touch a box the entire time you were there. Or 
you would see some language that were that was putting you must be able to drive a car etc and like you never touch a vehicle while you're there and we again we saw folks of color we saw advocacy accessibility advocates coming out and saying this is absolutely rooted in ableism like we need to be able to accurately describe our the needs for this role because we are blocking out folks with disabilities and and people who may be utilizing mobility devices, et cetera, like you may be holding them back from even applying for this role by having these requirements that aren't even reflective. You're just copying and pasting the last description. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that word sustainability as suspected. Going back to something, Janelle, that you said, I think is a lead into our next point. Point number five, you talked about mentorship, uh, meaning lack thereof. Point number five is ways to help raise the voices of people of color. And there's a the four pillars, exposure, mentorship, support, and networking. The people who listen to this show are sometimes independent professionals. They also are a lot of people who work at museums. And if they're in a position to hire, can you tell them right now what those four pillars are? Exposure, mentorship, support, and networking. And maybe the listeners to this show can do some good. When we originally had this conversation, I remember talking about mentorship across. And I think that's something that is has been really vital for me. I think oftentimes we think that we need to be mentoring, mentored by the CEO, or we need to be networking with the people at the top, so to speak. But oftentimes, like I feel like what has got me in the door is like, colleagues, friends who I met at a conference or someone that I did a class with previously or that I met at an opening that I went to. And I think that's something that I try to, you know, encourage other professionals. Like, I I think it's so, like, oftentimes, like, oh, networking, like, it feels very cliche. But I think really thinking about it in terms of, like, building and sustaining relationships. And I think there's so many ways to to do that nowadays, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn, like just choose one, connect with people on there, begin to follow what people are doing. And I think that is one way in which I think people of color, even just thinking about, again, how Museum Q started doing these events just to bring folks together, just to meet one another, to have this kind of network that can support one another, share opportunities, resources, et cetera. I think all of that is, is really tied up tied up in one. And in our previous conversation, I also shared how I felt being at Museum Q was a sort of full circle moment for me because I met Sierra at a conference many years ago. What was this? And like I can't remember. It was it was the a conference that was hosted by the arts administrators of color. And we met there, but then like I don't think I ever spoke to Sierra again or saw her again after that. And then years later, I see she became the deputy director of Museum Q. And I was like, oh my God, I remember her. And then several months later, I'm interviewing for the role that I have now. So I think, again, even just meeting her very, very long ago, all the, the world is very small, as we already said, like, the museum field feels very large, but it also is very small. And so I think that relationship building is, is, is really key. Would you recommend that to people who are other people who are listening who are maybe in the position that y'all were in five years ago, 10 years ago, and looking for that opportunity? The recipe you just gave our listeners about getting out there, getting in the mix, networking, going to events, meeting people, the people, the young people that Sierra, you were inspired by at this event that you held at the Met. Those people are coming to, they're getting their name on Janelle's iPad because they want to meet and greet. They want to talk to you. They want to talk to other people and they're going to become that person later on, right? But is that something that our listeners can take away? If you want to get that that next job, if you're a person of color and you want to find a sustainable career, you got to, you got to work hard. It's right in the word networking, work. Uh, but you... Uh, have to get out there, and this is the way you can do it. Just be out there. Is that is that is that correct? Am I hearing that right? Is that the advice? Yeah, that's part of it. I would say being in the streets helps. Yeah. I would say that, like <laughs> definitely being 
active and engaged in the community will take you very far. We are very lucky to be based in New York City, which honestly has some of the best communities for museum and arts and culture folks. I have to shout out our friends at the Museum Association of New York, one of the most active museum associations, considering this, how small their team is. They are all over the state supporting museum professionals, organizations as small as like Rump and Broom Schoolhouse Historic Houses, as big as like the entire Dia Beacon like collection of properties. They truly serve all types of museums and they've been doing phenomenal work. We also have folks like New York City Arts and Education Roundtable. They are another incredible team, small, but just out doing incredible work around advocacy, working with teaching artists, being a professional who may not be in a traditional like nine to five working job, but you do art service either through after school programs or again, you're teaching artists in a museum or out of school and they provide so many supports and resources for folks there. We also have the New York City Museum Educators Roundtable. There is also like chapters of conservation and collections groups. And there is the Association for Art Museum Curators also has like a, I think their main hub is New York City. And then of course it's New York City. So there's just so many different arts places that you can meet people as well. So not including all the different regional and local organizations that you can join. So those are just places you can start looking to meet people. Those organizations all have programs, all do things. But I also would be remiss to say that Museum U also is a good place to go <laughs> do programs. Um, and, and we are all over, but definitely very much repping our, our home state of New York. So I would say definitely being out there is a big thing. And one of the things that a lot of our folks walked away with is having your really great public facing materials ready to go for people when you are meeting them. So the folks who attended on Friday also got free headshots, which I told a very embarrassing story about why first headshot being like taken in the bathroom somewhere. I was like, don't do that. It's going to be a nice headshot here. <laughs> and I mean, it was a very nice generic wall, but I knew it was a bathroom. <laughs> yeah, there was a, I think it was AAM, one of the museum association meetings, I think last year, there was a booth giving free headshots to young Big professionals. Flash. And I was like, wow, that is That's much better conference swag. Yeah. Who needs a who needs a Stanley cup? Headshot. Everyone needs to get a nice headshot. That's true. This headshot. Before we move on from the last point though, I did just want to raise that I think something that I have learned or take away from networking and mentorship is that I think when it comes to like getting a job or like moving up in a field, it's important to have people who can vouch for you and to say when opportunities come up, like they're like, oh, yes, I know this person who would be amazing for that. You know what I mean? And I think so that's that to me, I think one of the core things about relationship building and having a network is that people think of you. People are like, I know that. Janelle really loves working with artists. And so if this opportunity comes up or something, they think of me and they can also be like, I I can vouch for this person. Like professionally, I know them. I know who they are. I know what they represent. And so I think being in the streets, networking, all of that helps helps with that. Do you think, it, do you think that, it, how do I describe it? That it helps when people see you in action. So if you are, if you're coming to an event and you're networking, maybe don't just network and say, hey, how are you? I like your scarf, but actually man the front door or help out with distributing things. So the other people see, oh, wow, you you showed up on time. You're really good with people. You helped us manage all the finances on this, on this event. You helped us strategize the event itself. And then a bunch of people are like, wow, look at that person. They, they really see, as opposed to just like, wow, you seem very charming and articulate, but does it, does it help? In other words, don't, don't just be out on the streets, but actually do well it goes back to what you were saying Janelle. you started out by volunteering and doing things which you didn't get paid for volunteering i guess but people no. did see you working <laughs> right they saw yeah. you doing the work and they're like wow this is a good person yeah um, i think resisting resisting playing small helps like don't just be a wallflower like i think even at the event last week i think sierra announced like Make sure you talk to at least one new person tonight. Like, don't just stick with the people who you came with. And I think that's something that is really always like helpful, particularly for young professionals. Like, sometimes it feels 
easy to just play small or stand in the corner and wait for someone. But I think those are things that over time in your career, like you really want to be strong at and develop that assertiveness and being able to be confident in who you are. Right. Advocate, advocate for yourself, right? Yeah. So Sierra kind of set up our last point, point number six, just a minute ago by saying one way you can get these opportunities. So our last point, point number six, I'd love to hear a bunch about this. So that is how listeners can get involved. Museum Hue is looking for speakers, collaborators, sponsors, and partners. So how how can our listeners get involved in Museum Hue? Let's, let's give them some easy, low-hanging fruit that they can do all the way up to the, the really ambitious thing that you're really looking for. What's the what's the the gold star level? Oh, that's perfect setup. Uh, <laughs> so, some low hanging fruit is just to join our newsletter and um, follow us on social media. We are always posting uh, events as well as information and, and resources that we are hosting or that our friends and partners are hosting. And we want to share what people will hear about them and be involved and talk about them. So, uh, those are free ninety nine great ways to get engaged. I'd also encourage folks to join Museum Hue as a member. We do have individual members, and we just started an early career professional level for folks who are just starting out in this work to to get engaged. And we are building out, as we shared before, this whole great suite of programming called University for that um, for that tier of folks, particularly just so that you can like learn more from the um, folks in the field directly. And we're working on a couple of really great partnership activities around that space. Wait, I just um, realized we, that you said you said this before. Did you say University? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I see what you did there. Okay, uh, good. We do a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Excellent. But you can purchase a membership. We also have institutional memberships. Institutional members start as small, as small institutions with like the, the lowest level, I believe it was like 250. And then it goes up to expansive institutions, which are our biggest organizations, which are 5 million plus operating budgets. And that's like 800 a year as a, as a member. And I would say in addition to being a member, we always are looking for folks to sponsor and partner with us. Museum Hue is based in Brooklyn, but we don't have our own space. Ironically, we're not like we ourselves are not a museum, but we love partnering with museums and arts organizations. And so if you ever want Museum Hue to come talk in an event, if you want to host Museum Q for our one of our events, we're always looking for places and and definitely cool places to host that are different from everywhere else that we've been. So feel free to reach out to us and we can work out something with you. Regardless of what your space is, we've done stuff in theater spaces, workshops, etc. We also have this I think I said sponsor us, sponsor us or programs so that you can get your name on something. And and also, if you have something personally, like the custom that you want to create with us, I, I I always like to leave this option open. And like, if there's something you have in mind, feel free to reach out. We're always open to at least entertaining anything that has that folks come to the table with, in in that they're interested in supporting. But we are we are definitely in a place right now where we're doing a lot of research and programming in areas that folks are excited about. And so we want to make sure that as we go back out with with COVID in its current situation, where we are still outside, we also want to be mindful of folks. We want to make sure that there is that there are opportunities for folks to meet us virtually and in person, and we're open to any way we can make that possible. All right, so no, we got some low hanging fruit. We got some sponsorship. Janelle, you got any other ideas? Because I'm I'm going to say this. I'm going to start the ball rolling for the listeners. I'm joining Museum Hue today. And also, I have an office in the middle of Manhattan, and we do a lot of working from home, which means we've got often a couple conference rooms that are available, and they're certainly available at night. So I would love to invite Museum Hue to use our office for whatever you may need. We are in Union Square. Ew. We're not up by the Met, but oh. we are in Union Square. <laughs> we've got the Green Market. You know, we've got good tacos, and oh. very easy to get to. So our casa is your casa. So, Janelle, is there anything else that people can do to get involved? We've already got the low-hanging fruit and sort of the gold star option. No, I think Sierra got it all. That was perfect. That's it. Okay, so I'm going to do a quick. I'm going to do a quick recap of what we talked about, and then we'll get to how people can get in touch with you. So, here's our recap of the list for today: 
we've been talking about uplifting the voices of people of color in the arts, culture, and exhibitions field with Sierra Van Rick de Groot and Janelle Thompson. Number one, what Museum Hugh does and how it all started. Number two, the challenge of raising the voices of people of color in the museum and exhibitions field. Number three, the real numbers, percentages of museum staff who are people of color. Number four, how we can bring students into sustainable careers in the arts and what sustainable means here. Number five, ways to help raise the voices of people of color, exposure, mentorship, support and networking. And number six, we just discussed how listeners can get involved. Museum Hugh looking for speakers, collaborators, sponsors and partners. And everybody who's listening, you've heard the low-hanging fruit. Let's all do that. And anyone who's listening who's going for that gold star, uh, please follow my lead and get involved right now. So excellent. Sierra Van Rick de Groot and Janelle Thompson, it's been great to have you both on the show for a second time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So if listeners would like to get in touch with each of you, and also importantly with Museum Hugh and University, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, you mentioned social. Sierra, I see you on LinkedIn all the time. Janelle, I'm, I'm thinking maybe your Instagram. I don't know. What's the best way for people to get directly in touch with you? So I'm not on Instagram. I'm a millennial that's anti-social media, but you can find <laughs> me on LinkedIn. And <laughs> so I'm on Excellent. there. And what about, Janelle, you know, let's get an email address for you too if people want to reach out to you directly, if we could. Janelle at museumhue.com and museumhue.org is our website. Awesome. Yep. So that's a J-I-N-E-L-L-E is how you spell that name. Yeah. And Sierra, I'm not going to force you to spell your name. I've been, every time I say your name, I'm like, man, I got to get this right. That's the most, that's the most excellent name. And it's the only, I, I make notes during the course of the podcast. I make notes to myself because my guests are always saying fascinating things I want to act on. And I, I abbreviate the names. So all through this thing, I've been saying, JT said this. But when I write your name, I have to say, S-V-R-D-G. <laughs> so anyway, but what is your, that's totally a side note, that's silly, but what is your direct info? How can people get in touch with you? I am the other side of the millennial spectrum where I am perpetually online. You can find me on LinkedIn under Sierra Van Richtiger and Jonathan will have my name spelled out on the, the thing so I won't spell it for you. We'll be here for 15 minutes. Then I'm also on what used to be known as Twitter, uh, Sierra underscore VRD. I also, you can also find me on Instagram at Sierra Goes There. And I would, all one word. And I would also recommend following Museum Hue socials. It's at Museum Hue on everything. So you'll find us very accessibly there. And then, as Janelle mentioned, our website is museumhue.org. Awesome. Okay. A lot of ways to get in touch with y'all. Okay. I think we covered it. This is great. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. And by the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name. One quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe to that at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.